with Bill, maybe he, he liked it more planned out and more interesting combinations of things like that. You know, he liked the random too, but that was more his type of thing. Well, yeah. it's so it's so reductive, right? He knows his way around a pop song. He must be Paul McCartney. And, you know, you're a fucking crazed tape loop maniac. You must be the reincarnation of John Lennon from the night he first took acid with Yoko Ono for the uh, Naked Tushy cover. Great album, by the way. Yeah, great album. Look, I've really enjoyed watching your channel. Because Whatever the kids call it. This, this, I wasn't, this is ridiculous, but I wasn't sure about the picture of you of the drummer guy, the extra drummer. Oh, Nastanovich, yeah, yeah. I was like, that must be him. Anyway. So, the, the, so the story there is during the course of the interview, and Bob's okay with me talking about this. There's no HIPAA regulation thing, but I, I fit hearing aids, and it turned out that Bob has had a long-standing hearing loss that was untended to before anything with the band. I mean, I really enjoyed that, and we're going to have fun talking, I think. You know? uh, absolutely, well, yeah. Five stars, slightly enchanted, absolutely. <laughs> but the last one, I fucking love that one. Which one, the record? It has some keyboards, and then doom. Yeah, yeah. Just to wrap up the Bob story, that picture was taken. It was kind of an outro or something. I was like, I could see that, you know. Yeah, yeah. That picture that you were alluding to was taken outside where I was working at the time. So I actually gave him a pair of hearing aids and I fit him a year ago. So I gave him what would have been $7,000 pair of hearing aids. I just gave it to him. So this is now a hallmark. You know, all the guests I care about, yeah. he gets a $7,000 gift. You're going to get my fucking four track. You guys are raping me of all of my worldly <laughs> possessions. <laughs> I mean, we want you to be a minimalist. I don't really know you that well. <laughs> exactly. I want you guys to be minimalist. You know, uh, the uh, Os Mutantes uh, interview. Okay, you said there was an unreleased album in seventy or something. You know, maybe a little bit after they broke up for the first time. And you said it's incredible. He had some incredible stuff in the seventies because those first few records put it out now are the only. Yeah, it's. I mean, you can find it. So I was born in seventy one. You say seventy two. I was born February 72, yeah. You're what, December 71? June 14. Yeah, you're nine months Trump's, old. Oh, Trump's birthday, yeah. Trump's birthday. <laughs> you guys share just about every single character trait. Oh, God, don't you think? Where did you grow up? So I grew up in New Jersey. Okay, cool. And then uh, went to school in Boston, lived in San Francisco, lived in Los Angeles, lived in Long Beach. I've seen you in two different cities. I've seen you, well, I've seen you in Hoboken, which basically means New York, and I've seen you in San Francisco. Did you see uh, San Francisco where we play, played quadraphonic? I saw you at the Great American Music Hall with music tapes opening. I think that was it, yeah. And it yeah. was fucking phenomenal. It doesn't matter where you play. You, you know, if you played Madison Square Garden, you would have put on the same show, I think. Thank you for being interested in that. I really appreciate this. It's amazing. We can start or whatever. <laughs> Welcome to Discography, the podcast that gives Gen X music maniacs a chance to smell like teen spirit again by connecting with a brotherhood obsessed with rating the entire discography of every single artist and band that ever mattered. I'm your host, Dave Gebro, and with three new episodes each week, you're going to gain a comprehensive knowledge of an act's history and output and the time it takes to listen to one album. And in this episode, episode we'll be turning our spray cans on the olivia tremor control 
And then when we run out of spray paint, we're gonna re-up and turn those fresh new spray cans on the circulatory system. <laughs> Along with our unbelievably special guest, Will Cullen Hart himself, who'll be sifting through the sacred transmissions issued forth from his younger self and rating them all, every last LP, EP, and single from zero to five stars. In the next hour, Will spills the beans on his all-consuming obsession with discography, along with his assessment of my assessment of Pavement's work, the jaw-droppingly surprising double LP that inspired him to make music for the rest of his life, and you'll absolutely never guess what it is, and an in-depth deep dive into the Olivia Tremor Control's formation and classic early singles. Okay, first things first, you need to know just how seriously I take this craziness. Discography is a music obsessive's dream come true. The guest and I explore an artist or band's entire discography in a futile but valiant attempt to reach a higher truth, which often is cleverly disguised as a nerdy compendium of star ratings and lists. The show is heavily researched, and the music is always reassessed with fresh ears. Coming up, we've got John Worcester talking about his favorite live albums of all time. Mark Robinson from Unrest rating everything he's ever done. Robert Schneider from the Apples in Stereo rating everything he's ever done. Oh, and Michelle Phillips rating everything she's ever done. Alongside Mamas and Papas author Richard C. Campbell, who's written a brand new book about him getting kinda itchy. So don't miss out. Open up your listening app right now and subscribe. And for a significantly longer director's cut of this interview that's both ad-free and available a week ahead of time along with the complete versions of all our shows just go to patreon.com slash discography and subscribe even if you're not sure just head on over there because it's finally completely free to become a basic member we've got a hundred episodes available exclusively on patreon and that number as well as the discography inner circle is growing exponentially by the day that's patreon.com slash discography and away we go then. Yes. Tonight's guest, side by side with the incomparable Bill Doss, the psych world's greatest all-time ginger. These two pipers, upon stumbling into the gates of dawn, injected a well-needed burst of 60s sunshine into an era that wasn't readily embracing that particular sacred strain of smile-era psych-pop craftsmanship. Yet the music itself utilized and continues to utilize the least cutting edge of 1990s lo-fi technology, the towering Kubrickian monolith that is the Tascam 4-track. This man burrows deep, and his sprawling works were never accused of being preferred listening for the ADD afflicted. Lads and ladies, gulp down the remnants of your moonshine acid and backyard psilocybin, because it's high time to twist the faders on the the great cosmic mix and i'm honored to do so side by side with the wondrous will hart thank you yeah an intro man wow that was cool the ginger things right about bill a beautiful guy you know this is i was just telling you before we actually got into the taping this is not one of those episodes where i'm coming at it as a curious uh, and interested student of music i'm all in with you guys i have the giant day on vinyl and original pressing i have dusk of cubis castle with the exploration cd you know i was there at the outset and i was a fan you know before whatever reissues came down the pike thank you 
and I like Nirvana and all that stuff. But yeah, you know, we were just like, that's not the thing we do, you know. So we want to do some psych. <laughs> we want to be a psych, you know, psych band, psychedelic band. Yeah. All my all my friends at the time, all of them, you know, everyone liked Nirvana. Nobody didn't like Nirvana. Yeah. You, but you guys were a big deal for us. You guys were a band that we you know, we were always talking about. If you were in town, we went to see you. You know, for me, I, I always liked Nirvana. I never saw them live, and it just wasn't, I didn't have a similar, it doesn't make them any worse. I just didn't have a similar personal connection. The two times I saw you guys, saw you at the great Maxwell's in Hoboken, where I met Bill Doss, and he yeah. gave me his home address to send him my Tascam four-track rock opera EP, which is entitled Intergalactic Chump, Super Dan Saga, you are right now smelling a pillow. Uh, you were burping. Yeah, sorry. You don't need to. You don't need to stealth belch here. If you want, I'll even take responsibility for all your methane. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, another time, I saw you guys in San Francisco at the Great American Music Hall with music tapes opening. Both times were legendary. You guys both meant and mean the world to me. And you're not exactly prolific either. So, like in other words, you know, we're talking about a band that you put out seven inches and things of that nature but you basically put out two albums and since that time for 25 years you've been at the forefront still of everyone's minds and that's because you are that good and you have inserted yourself in a place on the shelf that remains only for you guys there's no other band that could be there on that in that space wow sorry but i watched the pavement thing last night which but which pavement thing uh, talking with the drummer Oh, the episode of Discography about about yeah. do, do we fit in that kind of situation? I mean, because they they were a little bit before us, but I mean, to me, yes. Yeah. So, so pavement. We were describing it like in '89. I worked at a radio station, KLBI, a college station, from '87. I was in two years before I graduated high school, but they let me do that. And so, anyway, the press on pavement was huge. All these different things. And that's what you were saying. In that world, it wasn't a huge world, but, you know, Perfect Sound Forever. It was like, well, this shit's amazing. And, you know, SM, Spiral says, you know, and it was all, you didn't really know with pictures of them. And they got this old drummer, you know, that's yeah. a punk rock band. <laughs> He's like 40, crazy. <laughs> which, which, by the way, you should see louder than you think. The documentary yeah. about Gary Young is incredibly moving. But in answer to your question, pavement will always mean a lot to me but if you want to cut to the chase like cut to the real quick of it yeah. you know what it means when a band matters to you for example rem when they mattered to me meaning yeah. they were creating raw vital work that yeah. was completely inextricable with who i felt like i was as a person First five albums. yeah right right so then when green comes out we still love rem but yeah. it's not the same the relationship has changed yeah, so true. with with pavement i felt that with wowie zowie like it's the relationship started changing for me that yes. was around the time when you guys came to the picture for me and it's not like you took the place of that but for me i discovered you guys guided by voices a few other bands that were putting the wind behind my sails that's cool that's really cool things were happening for us you know and so i kind of was in the pavement and i was like i like wowie zowie i bought it on vinyl i remember and then the next one i'm on the stereo i didn't really follow that but over the years you know i love all of the fucking albums. yeah me too oh yeah i mean yeah but i love pavement 
Yeah, let's get into the meat of it, and then we'll start actively courting digressions, okay? So the rules of the episode tonight, because this is a hot seat episode, and I don't ever do self-directed discographical trolls unless I'm a big fan of that person's work, or else it'll get potentially very embarrassing. So we're to be honest about how we feel, even if how we feel is that this is an unending string of pearls. So for anyone who is either living under a rock or somehow something traumatic happened to you in the 90s and you missed out on what was really going on with music the olivier tremor control i would say is indie rock neo psych if one needs to be reductive about such things a more in-depth description of your music might be a stew of neo psychedelia and tascam four track 90s bedroom lo-fi indie rock whose heart is composed almost entirely of boundlessly ambitious Alice in Wonderland type psych, taking influence from psych like the Beach Boys, the Beatles, and broadening the palette of pop and rock instrumentation using, in addition to guitars and drums, we got clarinet, flute, saxophone, theremin, violin, xylophone, singing saw, anyone? Yeah. You know, a big influence on your sound, which became an even bigger influence and sort of started gobbling everything up like Pac-Man eating all those dots would be John Cage and Pierre Henry. And a lot of that is you, I believe, unless the myths are incorrect. So I can't wait to ask you about that. You had noted that the band attempted to expand on the sound of 60s psych pop with modern recording technology, trying to avoid what you called hippie jam sessions nothing pejorative to say about it but there was no need to go there i i agree with you i was just learning about john cage and stuff like i mean well actually that's not true bill doss introduced me to john cage uh what was he called indeterminacy double cd he speaks and then these noises and stuff he was the one first introduced it to me how how ironic is that based on exactly because people think you know well it's so it's so reductive right he knows his way around a pop song he must be paul mccartney and you know you're a fucking crazed tape loop maniac you must be the reincarnation of john lennon from the night he first took acid with yoko ono for the uh naked tushy cover great album by the way yeah great album with bill maybe he he liked it more planned out and more you know interesting combinations of things like that you know he liked the random too but that was more his type of thing lest we forget paul mccartney did carnival of light yes (laughs) no proof to be had but he still did it if you could isolate one moment what would you say was as far as a creative human being with your path put in place like a guy who couldn't put the pen down to draw the guy who couldn't stop pressing record on the task cam when was your flashpoint moment of creative epiphany when was your holy shit moment when i realized that uh, this is this is my life oh black foliage era while we were recording that as a young kid getting into music what, what what got me into different things? Well, ELO, <laughs> you know, the, the double album, the only double album they have. Out of the blue. Uh, yeah, that was a major, major deal. Didn't really know the Beatles exactly. I lived in Colorado in a kind of hippie area, but John Lennon died. And I, who knew who that was? I knew who the Beatles were. Are you saying that getting out of the blue was your realization that you're going to do music the rest of your life? Yes. That I was really? Draw, I wanted to draw album covers. I think I... Maybe you still have the album around, but sketching over it and stuff. You know, I thought I was going to create album covers. Okay, like a Glenwood Springs. There was like downtown area. Okay, 
this is our house. And then there's a record shop and some other shops. So I'd walk down there all the time and ask for posters. It's a 71. <laughs> this is 79. Whatever. I was a kid, you know, and they would give me posters and stuff. You know, I didn't know who the fuck UFO was, but I liked it. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So that's amazing. So again, another very ironic situation where the album that I would have thought to be reductive, Bill Doss would have gotten the kick in the nuts from because of his pop sensibility. I would have thought Mr. Experimental. Mom saw the Beatles and he grew up with those records. And by the way, oh yeah, that's fucking incredible. I mean, oh, damn, they're so fucking good. He, he grew up with that more than I did. He showed me a picture of those picture. His mom went to see them. So there's a picture unpublished at Bill's guy somewhere. That's awesome. Yeah. So, you know, he brought that more into the thing. But I mean, I knew the fucking Beatles by then. Uh, you know what? Let's split open this fruit. This fruit's okay. called the Olivia Tremor Control and pick at the seeds and the meat of this thing, shall we? So yeah. the main classic lineup of this unbelievable group consists of Will Cullen Hart, Bill Doss, Eric Harris, John Fernandez, and Peter Urchik. Derek Almstead has also been drumming and playing basic guitar with you guys since yes. 2010. And Jeff Mangum also kicked around the band from 93 to 95. So you guys hail from Athens, Georgia, or do you? We can trace the wild and woolly tale of the Olivia Tremor Control back to its true origination as a psych band called Cranberry Life Cycle, which was formed in Ruston, Louisiana in the late 80s by you and Mangum. So, 91, maybe 90, somewhere in there. Oh, 90, 91? We had been playing and doing things, but Jeff got for Christmas the Beatles recording sessions book that was, you know. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He loves them too, but he's like, Look, you know, you and Bill could get into this, you know, and that changed our lives. Robert and Bill could actually play tune guitars. <laughs> Jeff and I could not. <laughs> he, I think he can now. I, yeah, I, yeah. You know, but really, it's like, oh, three-string guitar? Okay, he and I were into that kind of thing. He got, we got into the Minutemen and different things. He started working at the radio station. To be honest, I haven't heard Cranberry Lifecycle. What is the music like? Is it like a very nascent version of what we're hearing later on? I'm really proud of it, to be honest. Those kids were cool. Can I, I mean, I can look at it as someone else. It's from Radio Shack, I'm sure you know. They had those little microphones, and they mm-hmm. had a little kids sit on it. Yeah, that's what we used. I mean, the only thing we had. So that's what we plugged into the four track and used, you know. Who is who is running the the bulk of the material? It's Jeff and I making all the stuff up. First question from the Gen X mailbag: Wanathan Appleseed from the Elephant Six Enthusiast Facebook group asks, "What is your take on the recent Cranberry Lifecycle release?" I drag. I mean, you know, but the reason I say that is because I want to put it out. We want to do artwork and you know some pictures, you know, and better the best quality we can for Brandon Jack Bikes. But we're proud of all that, you know? So Bill and I knew each other. We got a house together. Bill went to school and worked at the bookstore, you know, on campus. And then when he was at work, Jeff and I would make music. Because there's a couple of songs we were like, we're starting to make. Hey, Bill. What is the difference between Cranberry Life Cycle and Synthetic Flying Machine? I'm not saying Bill's not included, but Je- Jeff and I started that. Because we, I mean, I could play drums and we could each play. So he'd have a guitar plugged in and go, ding, 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 ding. Doom, doom. I go, okay, cool. Let's do it. And mm-hmm. you know, and then just that little riff, you know, and put that down on a track, you know. So I'd just gotten the four track cassette and he had just given me the the Beatles recording sessions book really right in there. 
So I'd have it laying out while I'm looking at different things, you know, you're excited about it. It was cool that he would go to school and then and then go to work and come back and we'd all start recording, you know. But it was mainly Jeff and I, I guess that would be Cranberry Life Cycle and Synthetic Flying Machine. Well, Jeff at first wanted to help do my songs and, you know, he was not writing much yet or whatever, you know, but mm-hmm. so he played drums, Bill played bass. And that's kind of how that synthetic finally happened. You know, what's amazing looking at this early run up to when you guys are doing your first works as the Olivia's is, yeah. you know, I don't know how chaotic your life was as an early twenties guy. Mine mm-hmm. was like, looking back, A, I'm, I'm glad I'm still alive. B, it's just such chaos. There's no actual self-reflection about anything. It's do, 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 do with no self-consciousness involved with it. So when I look at your early history, it's amazing to see that all the pieces settle in their proper places because anything could happen. So Mangum leaves very shortly after you guys form officially as Olivia Tremor Control to do this solo thing, which I don't even think was called Neutral Milk Hotel at that point. He was just doing his solo stuff. I mean, that first single he did, he was still in Olivia. He was confident and wrote a lot more songs or something. Then we get to do his thing. And I think you yeah. Milk Hotel from that snow song and everything's beautiful here. So before he left, he bequeathed you guys with your name, right? He's the one who suggested the name. Yes. I mean, Neutral Milk Hotel. Oh, I, you did that? You yeah. named that? There's, Perfect. There's, there's a band called Milk and we came into the radio station. I guess the Neutral Milk Hotel. What better explanation of the love-infused <laughs> ideology of Elephant Six, which is I'll name your band beautifully, you name my band beautifully. Yeah. And something about the three names, you know, Apples and Stereo, yeah. You know, it's funny. You guys did not have a minimalist band. There was no, like, we have to have our quotient of paired back sort of bands. There was none of those. Low, one word or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Guided by Bush is one of the best band names ever. Oh, unquestionably. And yet he wasn't satisfied with just that one as a band name. He had to fantasize about hundreds of other band names, too. All right, well, now you're called the Olivier Charmer Control, which means... Phase one, <laughs> teeny tiny Technicolor Tascams, 1992 to 1996. Nice. Action! And now, an important message from Don Bowles. Dan Kapelovitz is the only candidate for District Attorney of Los Angeles who has over a decade of experience successfully defending those falsely accused of crimes. Dan Kapelovitz is the only candidate running for Los Angeles District Attorney who is dedicated to ending mass incarceration. Dan Kapelovitz is the only candidate for Los Angeles District Attorney who co-created and produced the televised freakout public access show known as The Three Geniuses, which the LA Weekly dubbed the most intentionally psychedelic show on television. Dan Kapelovitz is the only candidate for Los Angeles District Attorney who is an accomplished Phototheraminist. Dan Kapelovitz is the only candidate for Los Angeles District Attorney who now has a record label with punk rock legend and all-around weirdo Don Bowles. Dan Kapelovitz is the only candidate running for Los Angeles District Attorney who was not only the features editor at Hustler Magazine, but also Larry Flint's editorial point man for his First Amendment lawsuit against the military-industrial complex and the Pentagon. If you believe in liberty, justice, and the American way, vote for Dan Kapelovitz. Stick it to the man. Vote for Dan. 
Dan Kapelovitz. I'm Dan Kapelovitz, and I approve this message. Okay, so before we get into the music on your first release, I have questions that are perfectly situated here. So between drawing and music, do you remember, was it always 50-50, or were you drawn a little bit more to one or the other? The art, I guess, really. I, I love the music and stuff, but I didn't know how to play it, Anthony. And now think about it, it's like, I grew up, you, you did too, 70s radio, you know, top 40 stuff, but it was always the sounds and stuff, I remember, you know. I was thinking 10 cc. Dude, I was just going to ask you. For about 60 seconds, I'm sitting here thinking we're about to talk about 10 cc. I'm not kidding. How important were they to you? I only knew two songs. Not in love. And Things we love. do for love, but how good are those songs? So the two, Godly and Cream, when they left 10 cc, their thing that they were going to do, and keep in mind, this is a band at the zenith of its FM fucking superstar. Yeah. They yeah. could have written their own ticket, done anything. It's a triple fucking album. Triple album, Topographic Oceans or something. Is that something you yeah, do? Yeah, exactly. So okay. I'm in the midst of creating a triple album rock opera for the last 10 years because of Tales. But Tales is like, you know, hysterically overbloated. You know, I knew because I had ingested enough of Lester Bangs' writing that I yeah. was not supposed to like Topographic Oceans, but I felt an inexorable pull toward that kind of music as well as stuff like Count Five and the stuff I knew was okay to dig, yeah. you know? Getting back on the OTC track. So more questions here. Noah Garcia from the E6 Enthusiast Group. You don't have uh, Facebook, right? No, I don't. Okay. What are, he asks, what does your creative process tend to look like and how does it differ when making music when compared to making visual art or any other medium you might happen to be working in at the time? The drawing, creating it, your painting and stuff like that. That's just a natural for me all the time. You know? So I guess I'm kind of more of that than sitting around playing the guitar all the time, making something up. You know? So that's zero process. It's literally just like tying your shoes. It's something I have to do. I mean, yeah. I feel pulled by it. I really do. Yeah, too. It's just beautiful and it makes me happy. It is it. beautiful. Yeah. Whereas, well, I told you, I mean, the four track thing, I, mean, I can't, uh, I can, but I just haven't been able to keep up with equipments and different things, you know. <laughs> well, we'll get into more about your creative process because with the kind of work that's looming in the future of your discography, it's impossible to not talk about process because process is ultimately the entire idea. Yeah. Right? Isn't that the idea? Yeah. Isn't yeah. the in other words, isn't the work supposed to access a state of being that is the end game of the type of music you're making? I always saw it kind of that way. It's a world and the music gains you access to that world. Yeah, I mean, you're talking about vision Visual and, and musical? Not visual. I'm talking about ways of living, ways of perspective shopping, perspective hunting. Ways of living right around. Alf Abrahamson from Discography Soldiers of Sound Facebook group asks, how much did you and Bill Doss write together? To what extent were you collaborating? Or just anything about Bill Doss, please. And by the oh, way, yeah. I, I echo that sentiment, please, anything. This is the last question before we move into the music. Okay. We didn't create together all the time we did sometimes but it's more like jeff too i mean i had the four track cassette and jeff had one too four, three track or something but bill and i lived 210 sunset athens georgia we lived in the attic and so we shared that so we had the four track cassette always there so you know when i went to work or something he was free to use it so we'd like to blow each other's minds you know it's like this, this new song I did, that kind of thing. But we did create together some that I remember, like Giant Day, for instance. 
Anyway, it did one of those songs. Then I let him borrow it overnight, and I woke up the next day. She's feeling like a vegetable, you know. (laughs) And by the way, I I had you pegged right there as a smile freak. I knew you were a smile freak. Oh, yeah. And I Uh, knew one day, and I didn't realize it was going to take 30 years, that I knew we'd finally have that conversation. I feel like my and other people's interest in it coming out and him, Brian Wilson, the poor guy, that had always hurt his heart. Oh, yes. You rule, baby. (laughs) Since 1990. I know you're not watching this, folks. I just showed him my breasts. And on on my breasts are, I don't know why, when you say that about a man's chest, it just sounds so weird. But uh, I have a Brian Wilson smile tattoo. (laughs) (laughs) What I'm saying is like the pet sounds came out and the two for whatever on CD. Yeah. And reading about what smile could have been kind of thing. And I remember there was like a tiny picture in there, like that big just little stamp. I got a big piece of cardboard and then kind of tried to do it. So I did the huge. Oh, you drew a big one? I bet that looks great. When did you do that? 1990. That's so yeah. funny. But, but I was introduced Pet Sounds by Robert Schneider. The radio station where I worked, College Station, they had a, a library back to 67. So there were some reissues of the Beach Boys back then, whatever. And it was a twofer. But I was digging through there. He said something about Smile. And this is before the uh, Pet Sounds thing came out. But, but I was looking around, Smiley Smile. What is this? You know, and, and was like, holy shit. Were your parents playing them when you were growing up? No. <laughs> no. So that that's the freaky part for me is that I came up listening to them. But my dad didn't know a thing about Pet Sounds or Smile, which are, by the way, my number two and number one albums of all time. So to get to know them from not only a different vantage point, but to finally be exposed that this band I have known about my entire life were the most talented music act that ever set foot on the planet was mind-blowing to me. That they were hiding in plain sight like that was Beach fucking Boys. crazy to me. Beach Boys, you say? Yeah, the Beach Boys. Yeah. I mean... Yeah, okay. <clears throat> Capitol Records, I mean, you know all this shit probably, but Capitol Records, had, they, they were just a stupid kid band. You know, they didn't, you know, they thought they'll be gone soon. And so my parents, you know, they were 57. I mean, my mom saw Elvis a couple times, you know. Jerry Lee Lewis. Did they like fucked up music though? Did they have radical taste? No, they didn't. It just happened to me. During your epically long dreamscapes, especially on Black Foliage, have you ever watched your parents' faces when you're playing there for them? <laughs> I've never sat with them. Okay, I'm just curious. CD, you know. I'm just curious. You know, I always wonder with any of my guests what piece of music they've made that was their key for their mom to ask, "Hey, is everything okay, honey?" <laughs> <laughs> my, mom, my parents are fucking cool as shit. My, my mom is more. I love you, Dad. He's gone now. But I mean, he was the alpha. You know, I mean, he wanted me to do good in life and whatnot. But then I was like, yeah, Dad, we have this album out. I sent it to him. You know, and he was like, he goes, wow, it sounds really cool. I like it. You know, it's being positive. He goes, it sounds fuzzy. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, and yeah, yeah. I thought I'd wait to describe it to him later. Okay. You know, they're in the shops and stuff. They weren't together anymore over the years. You're talking about your your mom and dad? Yeah. We're an hour and 15 minutes into the interview. We've not talked about a single song. Let's, <laughs> let's, let's launch into your incredible discography. And from there, we can always deviate, my friend. 
Hi, I'm Dave Gebro. I threw my career as a licensed hearing instrument specialist in the trash, sold my house, and moved to the East Coast with my wife and four-year-old son in order to focus on making the ultimate podcast for music obsessives thrive. Now I need your help. Although Discography is rated in the top 2% of all podcasts globally, the economics of this thing are tricky. Becoming a member of Discography's Patreon gives you access to over 100 more exclusive episodes. And moving forward now every Sunday for only $5 a month as a private first class, you get our new weekly show by and for Discography's Patreon family, the Discography Soldiers of Sound podcast. It'll be hosted by Rudy Fishman, and given his sociopathic tendencies, I'm sure it'll have a lunatic's take over the asylum edge to it. If all you want to do is show some love, there's now finally a $1 tier. Don't miss out. Become a recruit and get your personal personalized backstage pass for a buck and for the cheapskates homeless people and all the bums sponging off mom and dad don't care just join it's now completely free to join as a basic member and it'll be the only place you'll be able to get our upcoming lou barlow Corey hansen mark robinson comp metal machine muzak as well as the triple album rock opera elf harmony i created with joe kennedy as the mentally regarded and the ability to purchase one-off patreon episodes that's it back to the show all right, so let's talk about Beneath the Climb. You know, eventually this was placed on the compilation you guys put out in 2000. And again, from a Casil Records compilation, which to this day we have never seen, quote unquote, recorded in 92. It's got the hop and skip of youth on its side, less orchestrated than Dusk, but it's still big. It's got similar aspiration, boiling over kind of a feel to it. Already pop brilliance, shimmering like mad. The Melody's already completely and totally advanced for a first attempt. It's a bit like the the sensibility of a Daniel Johnston where it's thoroughly orchestrated, but you got to use your mind to fill in the blanks, but it's all there. It's incredible. Yeah, I mean, thanks. When we lived in that attic together, you know, we had it set up so that microphone hanging down, but then mm-hmm. we have S57. I did recording when Bill was at work, stuff like that. So that was an instrumental I made up. Some point. <laughs> so there's two songs. There's that one, and the second one's the soundtrack to the Bible Bell compilation. I won this dog at the Driftwood Reunion Carnival 12272. That one sounds more like the typical. I'm just saying, if you're going to be reductive about the DOS and Heart disparity, yeah. it sounds more like a typical Will production. It's weirder, wiry guitar tone so who's on which one with more heaviosity okay bill sings that one i couldn't make it fit i said can you make it work he did it five seconds <laughs> and it doubled the vocals <laughs> nice <Yes>. nice <laughs> so yeah we did stuff exactly because i could do that because <laughs> i you know because I, I, I overthought things sometimes too much you know it's like should i yell it and you know but he just grabbed the mic so is this truly are these the first two songs you ever did the driftwood reunion thing i'm confused that years later to me if i remember right in the liner notes to your compilation it says from the soundtrack to the bible bell compilation on anadonia recordings recorded in 1992 on sunset ave yeah never gotten one those two together i'll give that four and a third stars thanks i know you give everything a five don't you well i did say that i didn't realize you were gonna i I didn't know you were gonna pull some other stuff up but thanks (laughs) yeah pull some other stuff out dude this is everything you've ever done bill and i did do stuff together what do you give these two songs 430 i mean for what i think they're good 
<laughs> I'm honestly proud of them. They're good. Five. Five. Okay. Hey, no contesting here. I'm a huge fan of your group. It does not come off as ego. It comes off as a sensible rating. All right. When was your first four track? What year was that? 1990. Okay. So the next thing is a serious favorite of mine. 1994's California Demise EP, recorded 92 to 93 at 210 Sunset Ave. One of a couple of four tracks with a cast of numbers of a few. This was the second Elephant 6, 7 inch and your first vinyl release at E6002. So Mangum's gone at this point. He was asked to play drums because he lived with you guys. And I got to talk about how this thing starts because from the moment I bought this fucking thing, the way Love Athena kicks in, holy shit, dude. It's like a log ram into the fucking eardrum. I'm so proud of it. I mean, we fucking worked so hard over years. You could tell, yeah. Stupid, shitty recordings. When I got the Beatles recording session, Bill and I just assumed, we read about it. It's four-track. Yeah, four-track cassette. It wasn't. It was four-track real real. But we just got into the whole, you know, they did Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Heart School. But, you know, so fucking that was so exciting for us. And we wanted to mix, well, lo-fi fuck me. That with what we call what we thought was high five. Well, the exciting tension of what you do, I think, is your ambition is boundless, but the equipment is nothing but restrictions. But in the best way, because you know where you stand. If you know how the thing works, somehow you turn that into an asset. And that truly is a magic trick because, you know, someone who's technically proficient will tell you that to achieve the kind of effect you're seeking, you need, you know, a Sahara of tracks. (laughs) And it's not the case. You just got to be organized, right? Yeah. I mean, and learning about, well, you you do do recordings. Not like you. Like, but we're yeah. going to be mic up the drums and say, ooh, ooh, these hummy pieces of shit. And, you know, you can't get the sounds we're looking for. You know, mm-hmm. Jeff's definitely involved in the California device because the way you said it, I, he was going to leave at some point. But yeah, sorry, love a thing that is great. Or be like, Dana, muddy, ooh, you know, crap. That song, is that it's more yours out. or Bill's? That's, like, that's total Bill's song. Is it? Okay. Yeah. There's something about the way that that song, when it really kicks in, not not at the very beginning, but you know when it really kicks in, I've always had this feeling of just soaring in free flight. It's just the most free feeling. Yeah. I put it on once in a while. So it's fun to be for me to go. Does this really sound? Is it still good? <laughs> you know. No, it's really the m- amazing thing. If you're a lover of music, you understand and recognize that this is one of the great ways that a band has ever announced themselves as hey, "Hello, we're hey, here." Yes. Yeah. Cool. It's fucking very cool. And by the way, you guys are ready. Somehow are master melodicists. Today I lost the tooth is fantastic. And the clean sound that you're getting, it's so funny how you literally don't need anything else to add to what composes this. It's yeah. spare and it achieves everything you set out. I think it yeah. seems like it achieved everything. Yeah. Uh-huh. Were you feeling at the time like if only I had a few more tracks, I no, could do no, this or that? Okay. No, I actually wasn't. You know, there's some like, there's some backwards things in there. Now, I was just being very creative on my own, pretty much. I mean, yeah. I think that was just me. 
By the way, I'm never attempting to be insulting when I call it window dressing, but the yeah. curly cues that you do, California Demise Part 1 and 2, it's sort of a great introduction of that aesthetic. And then we're into Sunshine Fix, which I'm guessing is Bill. Yeah, yeah, Bill. So, Bill. Okay. Let's, we had okay. the mic set up. This was at 210 Sunset, so 93. I knew the song already. That was a pretty decent drum player. So you just do 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 another. She goes, none of that. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I was like, and he told me exactly. <laughs> he always generally knows what he wants. He's like this packed thing here, and then these three horns. You know, whatever it might be. I love, I love the horns on that. And also, there's this heavy, lumbering, lazy dinosaur type vibe that you sometimes get on your records with the bottom end. Dinosaur Junior. No, 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 a different kind of thing, like a, like, a, like a baby dino, like a real baby dino. And by the way, your first solo record is, is the most pronounced example of it. It's like somebody who's waking up and before their eyes are open, they press record on the Tascam. So everything's got this yawning dawn vibe to it, but there's still a heaviness to it. And Sunshine Fix has got that. So this already feels like something of a concept album, only just a bit shorter and sounding perfectly at home on the format it's recorded on. And as far as I'm concerned, you guys are ready. We're in the big leagues. We were so proud of it, you know, mini album. There's more of the mountain to climb just around the corner, but I give this five stars for sure. Thanks, baby. Yes. That's it's so, cool. so good. My opinion means nothing, but the record, it really does mean something. And it did to me at the time and still does. The Shins, the band, I remember reading, I didn't really know them. People were saying they were good and whatnot. I needed some love, and I read in that magazine that they loved that single, and it was a big deal. So I was like, wow, when I really needed that. It meant a lot. That's but, awesome. Yeah. But these are not singles. You guys don't do that. <laughs> you release Sound Worlds. It just <laughs> happens to be out of 45. That's all. Thanks, man. That's so cool. Bill, that change could change again. Da, 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 on, yeah, on. yeah. He had a, an acoustic that plugged in. Oh, he plugged I it think. in live during the take, is what I you plugged, mean? Plugged it in, like right into the four track. I didn't know if you could tell it was a plugged in acoustic guitar. It's just, I love that too. Thanks, man. Thanks. It's one of my favorite moments, period. But in your discography, it's top three for me. So after that, Kasingle. Now, I just wanted to say Kasingle. It wasn't really a Kasingle. Well, we used to get Kasingles at was sent to the radio station there. But we weren't going to play these people. We, you, know, you get 30, 20 of these singles. So, you know, you take a handful of singles to record over. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, so that's what we would do is like take a few and then Jeff would be like, make me a tape. He'd always want to record something overnight. Yeah, I used to make mixtapes and mix CDs for people up until this century, long after all my other compadres dropped out of the race. So after this venture, you moved to Denver Doss moved to New York to play yes. in the band Chocolate USA, right? Okay, yes. so by 96, Doss was losing interest in Chocolate USA, just as I lose interest in the band after reading the title. What happened was they lost a member when they came through town, and then they were like, would you like to come along and play bass with us and learn in the car? We got like eight hours, 12 hours, you know, and he did. So he, and he met Peter, and Pete, Erkic, and, and of course, Eric Harris. And he was like, this is our band. You know, he kept recalling me and at the time when they were on tour. Is this that time in a couple's life where they break up and then they get back together and realize how serious they are about each other? This is like that crucial time where before you get married, you have to realize what you mean to each other when you separate? I think so, yes. Actually. Okay. 
Oh, hi, Dave again. I got to tell you about the next tier. As a lieutenant, you get an ad-free, substantially elongated director's cut of every episode. And you'll be getting the shows an entire week early from now on. And now back to our expertly crafted program. I mean, he'd never done anything crazy in his life, but he knew Julian. Yeah, I'll go with you guys. I'm quit my job. And he'd never done anything like that. that yeah, cool. yeah. Feels more focused. I remember in the film, in the documentary, they treat that part very nicely. But I didn't know if, in your perspective, looking back, because I know the truth is not the film, it's just a vantage point. For you, looking back, was that the crucial point where you guys doubled down and committed to each other? We knew, I mean, we knew we wanted to make an album. So when he come back, we were going to get focused. So 94, crucial turning point year, you had a split single, Gypsum Oilfield Fire, King of the Claws, from a split with Apples and Stereo released on No Life Records, recorded 92 to 93. Gypsum Oilfield Fire is at root your pretty basic pop song, bright, shiny, and beautiful, with a super buoyant Beach Boys party atmosphere underpinning it. Really stunning song. I love the paranoid spidery skittering of the guitar soloing toward the end and how it kind of just consciously peters out uh -huh. two thirds of the way through in a way that really commands your attention. What song again? That's Gypsum Oilfield Fire. Oil Oh, yeah, sorry. yeah, yeah. And then King of the Claws is unbearably poignant. I've always loved that ascending, descending guitar figure and the fireside warmth of the harmonium and that marshmallowing vocal bed that smothers everything. I can actually see it visually as an ice cream sundae. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. These are amazing songs. Definite five stars with these. Thank you. Yes, because you got that we were mixing genres. I mean, uh, handheld recordings and, and four-track cassettes and, you know, well, that's pretty much it, yes. But, you know, you, know, you do stuff. It's like, turn my guitar louder or something. No, take frequencies out. <laughs> that changed. That's what we learned. <laughs> Not cheat. Push my thing up louder, you know. That kind of thing. Which is a hummy piece of shit. It's not an easy thing what you do because I have to imagine that your tracks are saturated and that they're all screaming out for attention. You know, feed me, feed me. <laughs> and somehow you get the most out of them, I'm guessing, because I yeah. don't know what you're minimizing to focus on what you've chosen to, but you don't have an easy task. Gypsum and King of the Claws, is that five stars for you too? Yeah, actually. Okay. okay. Yeah, pretty proud of them, you know. I don't want to put words in your mouth. When we do the, the five star thing, but we're not comparing it to something I did later. It's just that. It's just that. It's just yeah, that. I don't. Yeah, I don't. I don't grade on a curve. Okay. Yeah. You know. Yeah. So the uh, your only release in '95 is the ships, which is from a compilation called okay. Succor. Succor. I don't know how you pronounce that. A Ptolemaic Telescope compilation. This is f between '94 '95 when it was recorded. There's a phased vocal effect that reminds me of Bill Wyman in The Stones in Another Land on satanic majesties yeah <laughs> yeah it's wobbly in the best yeah. conceivable sense like a rickety boat and the feeling that would give you like you know that kind of psychedelia uh like the original sea of love where it's an actual physiological type of psychedelia where you feel like unsteady on your feet it's that yeah. kind of psych it becomes really profound by the end the spooky whispering what sounds like the autumn leaf blowing field recordings over synthscapes then gorgeous peals of delayed guitar. It just sends you completely into a different universe. 
This is a masterpiece, man. In my not so humble opinion, this is a definite masterpiece. It's a more epic form of songwriting than you'd ever grow into later on in terms of there's a way in which you kind of backed up from that and went in a different direction. It's like it stands unto itself. And I want to know, how did it feel attempting an almost prog-like tune like this one at a four minute, 30 second runtime with all these changes? Well, we were excited to do it. We knew the fellow English. The way things are going today. Yeah. Look at the way things are going today. Simple and marble gray. Bill thought it said something else. I was like, you went for something here that I feel like A, you hadn't gone for before, and B, you consciously never really kind of went for again. So I'm wondering if there's a special feeling that you have toward the ships. To me, because I did these kind of around the same time, whatever, where we lived. That and the ships and green typewriters. It blends. I borrowed some uh, effects pedals from friends. That's how we had some of those effects that were on there. You know? I'm curious. If you go back and listen, you may decide that I'm uh, like a total douche, that I'm off base. <laughs> no, really. Uh, you may decide this is the same kind of thing as all these other things I was exploring. But you may feel like it is something that is an outlier. And I'm curious. So It's, it's different for sure. Simple and marble gray. Bill thought it said sinful. I was like, no, it's not sinful in Marble Green. There's a couple of missed things. Mondegreen. Smell the rain. I can smell the do, leaves. Do you know what a Mondegreen is? A what? Yeah, a Mondegreen, M-O-N-D-E-G-R-E-E-N, is, ex- yeah. is is a misinterpreted lyric. Okay, yeah. And then there's another one. that uh, Smell the leaves, you know, the color of fire. Look at the trees grow older. Bill thought it said covered in fire. It's like, no, we're not burning the entire fucking park down. That's why I started to want to print lyrics later on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but the the Mondegreen is, to me, that's necessary because that's the space where the interpretation happens, you know, is where the magic happens. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So as a kid... The Bee Gees had Deep Is Your Love, which I still think is a masterpiece. I thought that they were singing, I come to you in a submarine, not summer breeze. I thought it was submarine. (laughs) I love that. So talk to me, and just so it's a safe place to be dangerous, I've done LSD maybe 80 times. So talk to me. 200 maybe? 200, okay. You know, in high school, we couldn't get weed. Could we get a couple bits of LSD? I mean, does that count with how many times I've taken it? Yes, it does. So in terms of how that affects creativity, talk to me about your acid consumption at that time and how much of that was precipitated by the the knob-twisting psychedelic playground of the Tascam. We talk like green typewriters. And- I'm curious about your relationship between acid and composition and yeah. acid and, and hands-on mixing. Yeah. Black foliage was a hands-on mixing kind of thing. Was all of it mixed on LSD? No, no, no. Of course not. So not said, of course not. What parts were mixed on LSD? Uh, more like the long thing, the barking below it. That was really hard to chop up. And uh, But no, that wasn't done on LSD. It was a little digital thing I was using to really be able to go. And you can catch little bits. That, yeah, too, too detailed to do it yeah, that way. To like. 
Oh, by the way, I want to say for the ships, that's definitely five stars. I didn't rate it. I'm guessing you give it the same because I know you're a fan of your work. I really am proud of it. I mean, yeah, as well you should be. I don't sit and listen to it all the time. It makes me no. Look, look. If you had a if you had a discography that was up and down, and you gave everything a five, I'd be like, okay, dude. But (laughs) your discography doesn't do that. All right. So 1996, the Giant Day EP. Recorded between 94 and 95 on Peter Street, released by Drug Racer Records with an initial pressing of 600 copies with hand colored covers. This is something I own on vinyl, and it's another concept album like masterpiece of a single that, along with the one before, felt like a dry run at dusk. Uh-huh. It was like, all right, do we have the basic idea down? Yeah, we do. All right, let's do this. Uh, Yeah, I remember like before I made my first feature, I wanted to make sure I did a bunch of short films. And then I was like, all right, I'm ready. You guys were definitely ready, readier than I was. Uh, The four track moves that you guys are laying down on the Tascam are especially wiry. You know, I love the guitar sound that you guys get without an attempt at making it lush in anything except a conceptual sense. But you were definitely ready for things to be broadened out and presented in a technicolor widescreen scale next time out. Every song is just off the charts. Uh, Let's talk about the title track first. Yeah, yeah. So when you become a major, you get yet another show on Wednesday. Either Discography's The Top Ten, our Buried Treasure show, Rock Cousteau, our Slag Off show, Queasy Listening, or exclusive limited series like The Private Press with Paul Major. And if you've got no financial worries to speak of, keep in mind that some of the higher Patreon tiers allow you to actually advertise on the show, choose the bands we cover, or even some of the guests we get. For the price of a cup of coffee a week, you can ensure my family's fed, build a music library that'll be the envy of your block, and connect to a thriving community of music maniacs all at the same time. Don't risk feeling badly about yourself by not giving. Patreon.com slash Discograffiti. Once again, that's Patreon.com slash Discograffiti. They've got the instrumental thing? Yeah, yeah, I love that. Yeah, I can't play drums that well, so I had to do... You know, and then the other, then I went, dun, 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 you know, <laughs> one track, and then, you know, and then maybe one other track, it bounced that to one. I mean, we did a lot of one, two, three to four. One of the great things about these early EPs is that I think you start to become more and more cognizant as time is going on, as you get closer to dusk about how to construct records properly. You already were. But then you start executing it. So the giant day is not just a really good song that stands on its own two legs, but it's a great intro. Great new band. <laughs> and it's poppy and trippy in equal amounts. And then Shaving Spiders comes down the pike, which is one of your early pop classics for sure. That's a Cranberry Life Cycle song, see? Oh uh, no shit. Yeah, that's that's the interesting thing. Jeff, I just thought about this the other day. We needed another song to finish up the seven inch. So we did that because I you know, I remember in 91, I was, Jeff was ready to play drums, and I went, and we did, you know, and so then, what, a couple of years later, we needed a song, and it was like, let's do Shaving Spiders, you know? I and, love it. Yeah, and it's a blown out. Dude, I love those pounding tribal drums. Thank you. 
Oh, yeah, yeah. The flutes and the recorders tweeting and tweeting in the pre-verse section. Great stuff. Thank you. Fucking yeah. great, man. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. And then I'm not feeling human specifically. I always thought of that as your perfectly nailed four-track pastiche of smile. That's Bill, man. That's Bill. Oh, is it really? No shit. Yeah, yeah like I said, I'm, wow. I woke up and he didn't say, try, you know, this is great. You, you try to see if you can do better. It's not Beatles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, see what you think about that. This is so well, strong. It, that's something that we had talked about. David Bowie, Hunky Dory, Beauty Brothers. Fucking come yeah, on. Yeah. He learned right, right, right. He learned that stuff when he did that first album where I'm a little laughing gnome or something. <laughs> the Beauty Brothers ends that it's like it's incredible. So Bill that song's intense. You know what happened with his brother, right? No. Well, well, David Bowie had a brother. He wrote a few songs about him. Beauty Brothers is one. All the Mad Men is another. And his brother was schizophrenic. Uh, and around the time of Black Tie White Noise. His brother killed himself. What is, what is that? A film? It's a shitty 80s record that he did. In any case, you guys are firing on all cylinders, even in your, you know, are we or are we not ready for our album phase, which is just nuts. Five stars, very hard five on that one. I don't have to ask you what you think about it. 1996 compilation from the Treble Revolution cassette, Late Music 2. This was Kindercore's second release, recorded 94 to 95, but it came out in 96. This is true, pared down, essential oil type psych music, just the effects and accoutrement and none of the melody. So it's all bad trip, Tascam trickery. Did you like living in that headspace? Yeah. Did, did you want to live there full time? And were you worried about what that could do to you? Yeah, well, worried about how to incorporate it with this rock music, pop music we were making as well. I was getting, but I was getting really into learning about how to get different effects. Like if you speed this up, you know, that kind of shit. just in terms of the effect that living in that sonic headspace could have on somebody. For example, I had a full blown obsession with listening to Sid Barrett's solo records in 1991. And I knew I was causing damage psychologically by exposing myself to that music continuously. And I was you know yeah. so did you feel like flipping that switch was a dangerous place for you to go to no not really no? nothing no we were excited about getting our shit going on you know so it wasn't time for me yet to be confused about if i yeah i give this don't kill me i give it four and three quarter stars <laughs> no. <laughs> you give this five yeah no yeah yeah okay 1996 compilation christmas with william yeah, s tell me is that william s burroughs that's later the william s burroughs so christmas with william s just out oh. of curiosity is that a reference to burroughs of course yes it is okay i gotta tell you a quick story in September 1993, being a presumptuous 21-year-old, I was in Lawrence, Kansas, picking up a friend of mine when I was going cross-country, and I said, all right, let's go to Bill's house. It was 10 o'clock at fucking night, and we woke him up. He still lived there. Yeah, he was there. He came to the door and said, come back tomorrow. So we came back the next day. I very presumptuously, without even asking, I pressed record on a tape recorder and placed it on his table you know just because i'd been reading about byron geisen and all the cut-ups and yeah. why would he say no to a, you know so this is what i'm thinking i'm of course an idiot but i have the whole thing on tape 
and it was a half hour of just sitting and bullshitting with Bill. It was one of the greatest moments of my life. Ah, fucking cool, yeah. It really yeah. was. That's uh, 30 years ago, two months ago. Um, anyway, I digress. So this is a compilation on Kindercore, recorded and released in 96. More music concrete. This, in contrast to your other concretish type stuff up to this point is almost totally impenetrable is it fair to say that you had a stronger influence in the band at this point stronger than bill in terms of the direction it was going with regard to concrete yes yes but they asked us for a thing and we had to have it in a couple of days so they wanted something out of 16 bands or whatever you know so we, okay. we had to have it by a certain time so we just, you know, we used a couple of congos and then used stuff that we were recording actually for Black Swan Network. I think we used, so maybe with a bass in there somewhere and he was, and then noises and stuff after that. I think that's just the Black Swan Network stuff. We okay. We gave up a track, basically. New friends of ours. Yeah. I'll, I'll give this uh, four and three quarter stars. I know you're going to give it five. I don't got to no, ask. No, I'd agree with you there. Thank what? You. You're yeah. dipping below yeah. five. <laughs> yeah. It's almost self-flagellating. All right. So <laughs> no, July 1996, and I got to thank your very patient and awesome wife, Kelly, because this is the one thing that I hadn't heard, and she sent me a recording of it. She also was put in the unenviable position of having to deal with me. So thank you, Kelly. All right, Silverbug is the only track that I had not heard from you guys. And thankfully, I, I loved it. Like I said, thanks to Kelly, I was able to hear it. It's really heavy on an aesthetic that I really love in the E6 world, which is the kid's piano aesthetic. They're all Eric Harris. That's all Eric Harris? Yeah. To me, that's synonymous with the unbridled creativity of, of the Elephant Six world. <laughs> the piano thing, yeah. And you get some of the most chilled out vocals you guys have ever done. There's a gentle drift, which feels almost like a song that I really love, which is The Modern Lover's Old World. Thank you. <laughs> Kelly's the biggest fan. Yeah, I just, I love it. The 50s houses. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's my favorite song by them. But there's yeah. this really interesting musical element to it where it's just kind of drifting and hovering along like a cork on the ocean and the distorted leads are keeping perfectly in line with what makes you guys at this point such a fucking wide-eyed wonder five stars for sure i still in the 50s still the old <laughs> yeah yeah parents the <laughs> this is 96 okay let's take stock of where we are are you guys musical compadres or are you best friends you and bill Oh, God, yeah, best friends. Best friends. All right, yeah. so you and your best friend have been working on songs for a studio album as early as 1993. And here we are. It's 1996. You guys have been amassing tracks for quite a period of time. Your combination of songwriters was even though it's it's latterly been a sort of reductive thing where people have him tagged as the melody man and you as the unbridled john cage guy but there is at least an element of truth yeah, is if you were to reduce the thing das had these ideas that could be more trying to seduce a pop muse yeah. while you are really taken with experimental stuff not that you can't knock out a pop classic either so talk to me about what element of that you find reductive and about whether you agree with the basic truth at root is there enough to disprove that as a general theory 
No, it's like I was saying earlier, like, you know, he liked experimental stuff, but he kind of liked a guide, you know, he liked a certain pacing, that kind of thing. Whereas I might have been more, you know. What I'm trying to ask is, are you writing just as many pop songs as he is? And is he writing just as many weird songs as you are? No, he's not. Uh, okay, okay. No, he's, he's sitting around playing that acoustic guitar not plugged in. It's really interesting when you take these two guys who are so leaning on each other to create, you know, that third voice that the Buddhist monks have that's not really there, that's created. Woo, yeah. did you guys fucking have that? And when you guys branch away into two solo careers, you see what suitcases each of the two departing lovers are taking with each other. Cool. And it, it's super interesting, yeah. Music from the unrealized film script does get used, Kessel. I remember Bill and I saying, like, we're going to say it. We're going to say it every time. The whole name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As well you should. <laughs> it's just funny. <laughs> All right. That about does it. Stay tuned because next week brings part two of the Will Hart series in which we do a headfirst deep dive into both of the Olivia Tremor Controls albums, music from the unrealized film script Dusk at Cuba's Castle and Black Foliage. A heartfelt discography thanks goes out to my beautiful wife and son, Jen and Mason, Will Hart, Rudy Fishman, Elephant Six Records, my incredibly loyal fans, and especially the entire Patreon community, the Soldiers of Sound. I love every last one of you, and this show would not exist without you, my friends. Speaking of friends, it's high time for some new ones. They're in our Facebook group, Discography Soldiers of Sound. That's the best way to find out what's coming up on the show, but there's a hell of a lot more. You get recaps of the day in music history, the ability to pitch questions to guests, polls that put you in the driver's seat on guest and band decisions, and access to a thriving creative hub if you're looking for a collaborator. So make sure you don't miss out. You can find the link to the Discography Soldiers of Sound Facebook page right there in the show notes. And if you don't mess with the Zuck, no sweat. Just email me at info at discography.com and I'll keep you in the loop. So now that it's done and you want more, another way to dive even deeper into the Gen X flag wavers of 1990s indie alternative gold is to leap headfirst into the David Paho series, including the man himself rating Slint's discography. That's episodes 94 to 101. No Ages, Randy Randall rating the Jesus Lizard. That's 70 and 71. My interview with No Ages, Randy Randall. That's episode 88. The Bob Nastanovich rates Pavement series from 49 to 58. Nirvana, episode 30. The replacements with Bob Mayer, 28 and 29. And number 18, The Pixies. Join us during the upcoming week for Discography's week-long Will Cullen Hart Deep Dive. This Sunday, you can expect another deliriously sociopathic entry in our brand new Discography Soldiers of Sound podcast. And then this Tuesday, get ready for an amazing episode of Discography's The Top Ten. This week, Will Cullen Hart's favorite all-time Bill Doss songs, not to be missed. And of course, be sure to mark your calendars because next Friday, February 2nd, two days before my 52nd birthday, we're coming at you with part two of Will Hart Rates the Olivia Tremor Control. Trust me, you're not going to want to miss it. And so, from now until then, don't let our youth go to waste, lads and ladies. It's this God graffiti.